Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's episode, we're going to talk about literature and the movies. Where do these two art forms intersect? Where do they collide? And how do the social and economic conditions of one affect the cultural output of another? For the first segment of today's show, and actually the only segment, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll be joined by Jordan Brower, a recent PhD who studied and written about the influence of the Hollywood studio system on early 20th century American literature. We'll talk about the contentious and galvanizing relationship between professional writing and the movies, and focus in particular on one work of American modernist fiction, F. Scott Fitzgerald's 1925 novel, The Great Gatsby, comparing it side by side with its various movie adaptations that have come out over the past 90 years. How do these movies influence the way we read the book, and how does the book anticipate its story and its characters reimagined on the silver screen? But first, before we start chatting, I want to welcome my guest for the day, Jordan Brower. Jordan is a recent PhD from the Joint Program of English and Film and Media Studies at Yale University, where he studied the American film industry, the 20th century English language novel, and many more subjects around movies and literature. His dissertation is called A Literary History of the Studio System, 1911 to 1950. Jordan, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me, Tom. Okay, so one of the, uh, thank you, one of the benefits of having a show about literature and, and talking with someone so immersed in literature like yourself is that we get to drop a lot of very witty and real written quotes throughout the show. So I have a couple of quotes and I, I may, oh, wow. I may okay. turn to uh, um, Fitzgerald at some point in our conversation, but I want to start with one quote that you actually use at the end of your introduction. And it's from a novelist named Malcolm Lowry. Oh yeah. Uh, and I think it could be a good kind of segue into my first question, which is just generally, what is this topic that you've written about? What is your dissertation about and, and how did you come to it? But the quote goes like this. It goes, the formative power, for better or worse, of Hollywood on the youth of the world has been colossal, and we never know how much our own character has been molded by it. Whether one feels grateful or abusive, most everyone has a stake in it, whether they know it or not. To most people, it's the only Sunday school, college, or military to say nothing of sexual training they ever get. I love it. So what, what is Malcolm Lowry talking about there, and, and why did you put this at the end of the, the first, the introductory chapter of your dissertation? Well, it's really a tremendous quotation, right? Um... When I, when I found it in, in the course of my research, I, I thought, wow, this is exactly what people are, have been writing about since, say, 1999, when a theorist named Miriam Hansen uh, developed a, a concept she called vernacular modernism, where she described uh, the Hollywood cinema as something like the, the great global form uh, for the early 20th century that, that adjusted people uh, to the contradictory experiences of modernity, industrial modernity of the 20th century. Um, and so seeing a novelist say that in 19, I believe it's 1950, 1949, pretty much a half century before Hansen, is, is, is just kind of extraordinary and uh, kind of confirmed my suspicion that novelists were thinking about the effect of the Hollywood studio system on their writing. Before we get to the period that you focused on in your dissertation. I mm -hmm. wonder how that quotation resonates with you today as someone who still, you know, goes to the movies and watches movies in 2016. Does this idea of to most people, the movies, the Hollywood studio system is the only Sunday school, college or military to say nothing of sexual training. It, it, uh, it, it probably, <laughs> it probably, uh, it, maybe it's not that it doesn't ring true, but that influence, at least the source of the influence has probably changed quite a bit from when Malcolm Lowry was was writing well and, and lowry was writing basically at just as the the hollywood studio system was was cresting and, and just about to come down in, in 1949 1950 uh you know there wasn't a lot of competition in terms of mass media i mean there was the radio there was uh you know large large scale uh print publications being distributed but it was really the cinema the Amer the hollywood cinema especially that was so uh globally distributed uh but today you know um facebook um netflix YouTube, you know, there are just so many uh, channels of distribution. Uh, tele uh, you know, we're, we're in a golden age of television right now. Uh, so to say that the Hollywood film is, you know, the, the great pedagogical force of the day would be to probably overstate the Hollywood cinema, you know, putting a special emphasis on cinema. Uh, but, you know, media are never more important than they are today. Well, then take, take me back to that time when the Hollywood feature film was the predominant mode of 
visual representation or popular cultural representation in the world in this period that you study from 1911 to 1950. I'm interested in why you chose those years as the bookends, but just generally, what's the what's the argument that you're making in this uh, uh, in this dissertation, and uh, how how did the Hollywood studio system become this kind of world dominant? Uh, storytelling and kind of representational system, at least in the context of, of your studies? So there's there's actually a number of questions in there, uh, Tom, but uh, maybe I'll, I'll start just by giving a sense of the chronology. Uh, I wanted to write something like a history of, of the classical Hollywood studio system uh, based on the on the literature that it influenced. Uh, uh, th- maybe the, the, the most uh, canonical study of the, of the classical Hollywood studio system is by Board, uh, David Boardwell, uh, Kristen Thompson, and Janet Steiger. It's uh, and they define the era basically between 1917 and 1960. Uh, but this is very much a, a kind of formalist study where they say that, uh, it, and maybe that's to over uh, to undersell them. They do a really good job uh, of describing the mechanics of the studio system. But it's it's predominantly formalist, I would say, in in saying that the uh, the, the continuity script uh, and all the other um, uh, aspects uh, that would contribute to the development of classical style was in place in 1917, uh, and by 1960, it's kind of an arbitrary end to uh, the classical mode. And what I wanted to do was give a little bit firmer, uh, you know, beginning and punctuation mark uh, to uh, to to a sense of the of the system. Um, so does that does that get things? Started? Yeah, okay. no, I I think it certainly does, and I'm interested in in talking about those punctuation marks because you have specific. Um, at least at, in 1911, a sp- specific court case and it's kind of a specific historical event that that kicks off this era of studio dominance. And but and then in 1950, it's more of a a series of films That's and right. attitude that the studios exactly. are representing and that the authors who are writing for the studios. But let's stick for one more second on the time in between. I mean, you say okay. that the kind of fundamental contention of this dissertation is that the Hollywood studio system um, was the most kind of influential institutional force on the development of literature uh, and particularly American literature mm-hmm. at this time period. Uh, what is, um, I guess, what does that influence look like to you and, and how, um, I know that, I mean, we want to go through some specific points as to how, sure. you know, it, it influenced authors, but it's kind of generally like how, how did that, how did, how did that manifest itself? And in, in, were authors looking to Hollywood and saying, I'm going to write what comes out of the movies. I'm going to go to the movies to write. What, what does that influence look like in, from 1911 to 1950? Yeah, so maybe I'm, I might, um, you know, begin in the present and work backwards and just say that, you know, when you, when you can read a contemporary novel like Cormac McCarthy's The Road or um, No Country for Old Men and, and, and read it and say, this reads, this reads like it, it ought to be a film. And that, and people, I've heard people say this, you know, in, in reviews, you read people say things like this. And what I really wanted to do uh, in, in at least the first chapter of this dissertation was to provide uh, a kind of archaeology or uh, a history of that moment of when, of when we could have started to say a thing like that, like that this, that, that a person like Cormac McCarthy with literary aspirations could nonetheless be writing for the movies. Um, so the, the the court case that you referred to is is Calum versus Harper Brothers, and uh, it was about the famous novel Ben Hur, um, which was adapted in 1907, and, and uh, Harper Brothers uh, took suit against um, against the Calum Company for violating their copyright. But there there wasn't uh, really uh, copyright law in the books that established that as a problem, and and this court case in 1911 determined that that moving picture rights were separable from uh, copy from from copyright um, in in print and and dramatic rights and so forth, so that those can be owned and therefore assigned. So that was the beginning of of, mo- of moving picture rights. This was then codified in 1912 in the amendment to, uh, to the Copyright Act. And you, I mean, you have this uh, you have this fascinating idea of authors thinking about the afterlives of their books, uh, starting with this Ben Hur case, um, where thinking about film rights and kind of separating that out from the other copyrights associated with the work of literature means that authors can start thinking about, well, if I, if I'm writing a book, maybe it will also ultimately be adapted, not just for the stage, 
um, which that type of adaptation had existed, or at least that process had existed, maybe not at the same scale as we're talking about here with the movies, but thinking about adaptation uh, for for Hollywood, for um, movies that would be seen internationally by audiences they may may otherwise not have been able to reach. Uh, How does this thinking about the afterlife of books uh, kind of manifest itself in the way that writers are working in the, you know, after this 1911 case, as you move into the world of another focus of your studies, kind of modernist, early 20th century fiction? Sure. So it's very interesting um, that a lot of commentators in trade journals and in moving picture magazines, things like this, will talk about the profound influence that uh, moving picture rights has or had, or well, continues to have uh, on on writing, on, on fiction writing, uh, the novel and short story. Um, as as kind of uh, strong as their claim is, they're they're never they're never particularly clear. Uh, what they do, what they will say is that you know you need to have a lot of action. You need to have a lot of uh, uh, a lot. You need star potential. So you need to have a male and a female star. Uh, you need to reduce philosophizing. Um, anything and and all dialogue should be that which can be included on an intertitle. Um, so these are the kinds of um, the the kinds of elements that if if you if you have a, a, an incredibly crass sense of uh, of the translation or desire for the translation of your fiction into a movie, these are the things that you'd really keep in mind. You know, action star potential, uh, limitation of philosophizing, that kind of thing. And these are very and you talk about how th- this is a very historically specific kind of technologically specific understanding of what is appropriate writing for movie adaptation. I mean, at a time of silent films, emphasizing action over kind of psychological development uh, was just as much a factor of uh, how movies kind of represented themselves to audiences, uh, how dialogue was much more a, a secondary and and kind of written on the screen um, ingredient to a movie and not so much an integral form for how a plot or a character develops. But do you see over the, I mean, just, you know, I don't remember if, if you go into this over the course of your dissertation, but as with the introduction of kind of sound film in the late 1920s, uh, do you find that the studio kind of the strong suggestions from the studios that go out to authors changes as to what becomes you know, the best material for movie adaptation? Well, I guess what I would say is that it, it seems intuitively uh, the case to me that when sound film comes into being, then uh, it, there's less pressure to avoid dialogue. Um, I haven't uh, researched that so much as I have researched uh, the kind of uh, the censorship paradigm that existed uh, that came into being basically in the 19, in the mid 1920s and was for in, in what's called the formula of 1924 it was instituted by the MPPDA the Motion Picture uh, Producers and Distributors of America um, run by a guy named Will H Hayes uh, that eventually became what is more famously known as the production code uh, in 1930 and then was really bolstered in 34 so that's what i would say was was would be as profound if not more profound uh, not only the the technological change of the incursion of sound, but of the the strictures imposed of a kind of moral regime. Um, and so you see this, for instance, uh, if we're talking about the 30s and the sound cinema, um, for instance, Faulkner's Sanctuary uh, was adapted in 1933-34 uh, as the story of Temple Drake. Uh, and it's kind of one of these famous films uh, that's described as one of these pre-code films that resulted in the in the in the re revamping of the code because you know it includes all sorts of like salacious material that maybe we shouldn't talk about on the radio <laughs> do you, i mean this is something that i think people just kind of peripherally familiar with the history of the movies are aware of that there was this production code in the the 1930s that um maybe informally mandated what could be represented on the screen maybe, maybe more formally than that maybe you know, people, if they if they weren't punished, then they certainly wouldn't have their, their movies made if they didn't abide by a pretty strict uh, moral code. You talk about the, the, inf- the, you know, profound influence of the Hollywood studio system on the development of literature at this time period. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if in your thinking about other kind of parallel influences on 
literature, whether in the 20th century or, or other times that you have thought about kind of institutional influence on how literature is done. This, this moral element seems, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's specific to the Hollywood studio system or if it's just, it's more explicit here, but was, was this something uh, that you found unique about the influence of the Hollywood studio system on literature versus other influences in literature that you've studied? Or does every kind of institution impose some kind of moral code on what is an appropriate way to, to write and to have that writing be read? Yeah, I, I guess I would say that uh, I would place more emphasis on the institutional protocols than the, than the specifically moral protocols. Mm. Um, so maybe a bit of you know, biography or, intel or intellectual history of, of this project. Um, you know, uh, this project took off um, as basically a response to or an extension of what um, a critic, a scholar named Mark McGurl wrote in a 2009 study called The Program Era, uh, in which he makes the claim that uh, the, the MFA program made a, a tremendous, uh, had a tremendous influence on uh, the kinds of literature uh, that were produced, uh, the way that literature was produced, basically in the, in the, the, the post-war, post-World War II period. And so I got to thinking, if, if, if McGurl identifies the, the kind of tremendous institutional pressures on fiction writing in, in the post-war period, well, does that mean it came out of nowhere? Uh, so I got to thinking, what were the kind of institutional pressures on fiction writing that preceded it, uh, preceded the program era? And I started to think very much about Hollywood. And I always had this interest um, in, in film and its relation to the literature. And I always thought about it in terms of medium comparison Right of of, of uh, the what I would call an analogy thesis between you know the technical formal properties of cinema and kind of formal literary experimentation by people that you'd expect like Joyce or Eliot or John Dos Passos you know the really highbrow high modernist uh, kind of folks and I started thinking well what if we moved away from that medium specificity or medium translation argument and started thinking more about in the McGurlian way of institutional influence and then that just kind of opened up so many doors for me i know this is kind of a rambling response to a, a specific question about about um, moral influence but i think that the what i really want to uh, stress is the kind of the the institutional impingements that are at play here i i think that's a nice segue into the kind of person in the book that i really want to focus this episode on which is mm -hmm. f scott fitzgerald and and the great gatsby and its race movie adaptations because here comes an author and a book that reflect uh, both those the kind of institutional impingements that you're talking about and mm -hmm. are kind of uh, navigating that space between what you describe as adaptability and unadaptability or popular or high literature. Yeah. And then, of course, he is also an author who spent a lot of time in the late 1930s in Hollywood, in Los Angeles, writing for the studio. So he died there. This is, yeah, this is a, a life that very much intersected and was kind of at the center of this period that you were studying. So I wonder if uh, before we start talking about um, his actual writing and The Great Gatsby, if you could give me just a kind of high level introduction to Fitzgerald and his time in, in Hollywood. How, how did he kind of find himself there and what was he doing in Hollywood in, in the late 1930s? Well, yeah, so people are, are, are very familiar, I think, in, in the popular imagination, or at least if not very familiar, more familiar with his work as a kind of failed screenwriter for MGM than they are for his, um, uh, you know, adaptation history. And this is just, um, this is typical, right? Uh, you know, what, what I, I make the claim, uh, maybe uh, uh, too cheekily in my dissertation, but I, I make the claim that, you know, people know about the, the often risible, often sad often lucrative way in which many East Coast writers uh, went out West with the uh, inauguration of sound feature film uh, to, to write dialogue and scripts. Um, and so, you know, this is, this is Fitzgerald, this is Faulkner, this is uh, lesser, uh, equally great fiction writers uh, of, of lesser success like James Cain uh, and Nathaniel West and Horace McCoy. Um, these are all people that went out, went out West uh, to work for either the major studios like MGM or, or, uh, Warner Brothers or or the mid majors, the the, the littler three like Universal, um, or in Nathaniel West's case, they went out and worked for Poverty Poverty Row Studios, the really undercapitalized ones, um, uh, like Republic Studios. And as you already described, this is a time with the introduction of kind of sound cinema. So mm -hmm. 
no longer are authors just writing uh, kind of intertitles for movies, but they're writing mm -hmm. kind of full uh, screenplays and treatments and, and dialogue for characters. And uh, these the studio system was, as you described, just kind of desperate for for people to write dialogue that was entertaining and and intelligent, or at least halfway intelligent. And exactly. uh, and Fitzgerald, and you know, it's I'm, I'm glad that you brought up Faulkner because people may be familiar with the early 90s Coen Brothers movie, Barton Fink, uh, that describes this migration in a kind of satirical and absurd way by... Uh, Thinly Veiled. He's, uh, I, think he's, he's, I think his name's F.P. Mayhew. Yes, yes. And Faulkner. So I think, I forget uh, um, who the John Turturro character is supposed to play, maybe Clifford Odets, or there's some kind of aspiring, you know, uh, working class trumpeting uh, New York playwright who moves That's out right. west to, to make some bucks for the... And also cause, you know, have a strong influence uh, on American kind of popular culture through the movies. And he meets a, a broken down drunk of an author played by William Faulkner. And I wonder if, and is that, did you find in your studies of both Fitzgerald's and Faulkner's time in, uh, in Hollywood in the late thirties, should that be our key takeaway about their time there, that it was just a, a personal and professional mess for them? Or were these kind of surprisingly productive times for their literary careers or something in between wow i mean that's that's a really good question um they will tell you that they hated it uh, in their letters they hated it um for instance faulkner has this very uh amazing claim that he uh describes himself as being uh sold down river um uh, as a uh, as a screenwriter and this is extraordinary when you think about faulkner's writing about race relations and and the legacies of slavery and um, he's not to use that lightly. He, would, saying, he right? wouldn't. He yeah. wouldn't use that language lightly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, so this—that's just an index of of how profoundly they thought about these things, and perhaps how how much they hated it. And yet they wrote some of their greatest fiction, Fitzgerald and Faulkner, uh, at the time when they were writing. They were out in California. Uh, in Faulkner's case, Absalom, Absalom, which is just an extraordinary novel, which I I think must have uh, have a debt to pay, uh, debt owed to. Uh, his experience writing under a regime of corporate authorship um, in Fitzgerald's case, uh, the, the, la the love of the last tycoon, uh, which he was working on at the time of his death is just an extraordinary uh, uh, fragment of a novel really. Um, but you can see a lot of similar themes uh, going back to great Gatsby in terms of uh, romantic possibility and, uh, and kind of simultaneous undermining of that possibility. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a really fabulous novel and, and, and basically it's a, it's a thinly veiled, Irving Thalberg, who was the, uh, he plays, uh, or he is the model for Monroe Starr, who is the uh, protagonist of Love of the Last Tycoon. Uh, and for those who don't know, um, Irving Thalberg uh, was the, the vice president of production for MGM. He was basically had all of MGM's movies in his mind at once. This is, this is one of the claims that Fortune made about him. He was, he was the wonderkind of, uh, of, of Hollywood, and he died prematurely, and it was a great tragedy. Fitzgerald picked up on that tragedy and and fit and and fit it into his particularly uh, cynical slash romantic conception of of America. Yeah, I I think talking about Irving Thalberg and also Fitzgerald's time in Hollywood, I think maybe a good uh, transition to the the book that Fitzgerald wrote 15 years before his death, even before he he moved out to Hollywood, The Great mm -hmm. Gatsby that um, that we're going to be talking about and, and various movie adaptations. But I wonder if we could start talking about it by thinking about um, how Fitzgerald's understanding of the kind of influence of Hollywood uh, sh in shape or influenced the way that he approached writing uh, The Great Gatsby. And then looking at the text itself, I mean, where do you see the, the influence of the Hollywood studio system? And, and what got me on that track was, and you talk about Irving Thalberg having all of the movies of MGM in his head. I mean, you also explored this idea of corporate authorship and kind mm -hmm. of studio authorship a lot in your dissertation, which is the idea that not, you know, one single person is responsible for uh, the kind of entirety of a movie, but rather at, at this time period, the the vision of a studio is almost um, more responsible uh, for, for better or worse for how a movie winds up looking. Um, in looking at The Great Gatsby, I mean, maybe one entry point is, do you see 
is this uh, being primarily from Fitzgerald or is there enough of the studio system kind of seeping in to Fitzgerald's consciousness that it is kind of pulling itself as much towards a future kind of Paramount adaptation or MGM <laughs> or whatever it would be as someone aspiring for kind of high literary uh, achievement? Yeah, so um, I would say that, that Fitzgerald, um, at least as early as 1920, 22, 23, is, is highly attuned to the, the protocols of adaptation. In fact, in the novel that he wrote immediately before The Great Gatsby, The Beautiful and Damned, uh, he has this kind of very in, uh, incisive, witty vignette uh, where he describes a, a popular writer named Dick Caramel. Uh, you know, Fitzgerald had uh, hilarious names. Uh, but so Dick Caramel, um, there you go. Uh, he uh, is success successful uh, monetarily uh, as a as a fiction writer, and one of the things, one of the reasons why he's successful is that he includes enough so-called uh, kissing, shooting, and sacrificing uh, in his stories for like the Saturday Evening Post, so that he gets paid an extra thousand uh, dollars by the the movie studios. So this is to, this is just to say that uh, if Fitzgerald were writing this about this in his fiction, it's clearly something that's on his mind. Um, and so with that said, it's, it's hard not to see or, or to read in certain aspects of The Great Gatsby, uh, having, as, as one uh, dismissive critic said, uh, him having one eye cocked on the movie lots. Um, in, in fact, um, this is a, a guy named, uh, I'm forgetting his first name, but I think I believe it's, uh, his last name is Kenny. Um, so Kenny, writing for the Commonweal magazine, uh, said that Fit, uh, Fitzgerald's uh, luxurious depictions of swimming pools uh, and and everything that just kind of dripped expensiveness and glamour that this was made for some ambitious uh, director to to kind of uh, you know cut his teeth on, um, and so you know even in terms of what 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 we might call set pieces, this is something that Fitzgerald almost certainly had in mind. Um, on the other hand, you know there's you know there's that desire for the representation of the the the, the glamorous Hollywood lifestyle. On the other hand. He had high literary aspirations. He was a friend of Edmund Wilson's, uh, who is the great critic of, of modernism uh, and a college roommate. Um, he uh, he had read The Wasteland. You know, he, he, he you know, an erstwhile Princeton student. He, he had, you know, he had intellectual aspirations. Um, so you, you can see, I think, in The Great Gatsby, this push and pull uh, between, on the one hand, desire for adaptation and resistance of that for uh, and, and hope for, you know, high literary merit. I love the way that you, you when in your chapter about Fitzgerald and Great Gatsby, you talk about how it's not just in the uh, the words themselves, in his style of writing, that you see some um, kind of influence of the kind of potential for lavish representation in uh, in Hollywood movies of this era, but also in the way that the the characterization of uh, of Jay Gatsby himself and of Nick Carraway and that cynicism versus romanticism, the way that the character. Um, you know, Gatsby's character dies at the end, and this is not the normal uh, kind of conclusion for a movie that is vying for some kind of uh, filmic adaptation because studios not only were they encouraging a certain type of moral discipline as defined by, you know, whatever Catholic League of America was, was yeah. defining that at the time, but also this is, a, um, this is an art form meant to uplift um, and one where someone is... Uh, the the hero is punished with a pretty gruesome death at the end. It's not necessarily one that uplifts. But I also um, one of the kind of key moments of the the movies that I'm interested in talking about the movie adaptations um, is the introduction to Gatsby uh, at, at the first party that Nick Carraway attends, and uh, where we we meet this character and he turns and he gives this. Uh, incredible, almost indescribable smile, mm -hmm. and only Fitzgerald can really describe it accurately. And maybe I'll get to that quote in a second. But I feel like in that description of the faces of characters, it also anticipates something that was a pivotal kind of a foundation of the Hollywood studio system, which was the star system. I mean, a, a single actor or actress who was capable of communicating just unfathomable like grace and beauty and charm, but also a, um, a shallowness enough to move from kind of character to character, depending on the script. I feel like in that one turn of Jay Gatsby at that party, you see um, like a leaning towards the star system that this movie would, or this book could partake in, in the movies. And if, and if we're going to follow the analogy thesis, we would say that this is indebted not only to the star system, but to uh, an idea of the close-up, right? The ability to focus in 
on on the the curl of a mouth uh, is something that everybody wrote about in 1909, right? This is when uh, when it became uh, uh, kind of standard operating procedure to have cut-ins, to have medium shots that then uh, cut into close-ups. Uh, so we, we can think about the smile as, yeah, the full absorption and normalization of that kind of description. So it's, I think now's the perfect time to start talking about the, the movie adaptations sure. of The Great Gatsby. And this is, I'm, I'm really interested to hear um, what you thought of. So we watched two uh, movie adaptations of this film. There have been four in history. One is, is lost. Um, so the first was 1926. We had one in 49, 74, and 2013. And we'll be talking about the the um, 74 and 2013 ones today. But actually, could you um, could you give us maybe just a very quick introduction on the, the 1926 version from what you understand? I mean, this first, this adaptation that actually came out during Fitzgerald's life, just a year after the book came out, um, the movie no longer exists, it's not extant, but you did read a number of kind of contemporaneous reviews of it in your analysis of Fitzgerald and the Great Gatsby in your dissertation. So um, what was what was this adaptation like from what you understand? How true was it to the book and how can it point it point us towards our, our reading of these 74 in 2013. Well, in terms of fidelity, I, I'll defer to Zelda Fitzgerald, uh, F. Scott's wife, and say that, uh, you know, when they were in 19, uh, in Hollywood in 1927 for, for Scott's first experience uh, uh, as a screenwriter on, on the film Lipstick, uh, they went and they saw it, uh, saw the adaptation of Gatsby, and she said it was rotten. And, you know, he, she wrote to her daughter. Uh, it's, in all caps. In all caps. <laughs> yeah. It's R-O-T-T-E-N, and we left. <laughs> So the Fitzgeralds, or at least Zella, didn't like it. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's an indication of its lack of fidelity. But in terms, it is a regrettably lost film. This did happen. Um, it, you know, films were on nitrocellulose. Uh, they degraded. Uh, it's a shame, and it ha but it happens. And hopefully somebody has it in some barnyard somewhere. Uh, but we don't have it. What we do have is a trailer that's very interesting. Uh, and we also have a, a number of uh, contemporary reviews. Um, and what I've glean from the contemporary reviews is that it seems to hew very much to the dictates of uh of the of the code of the formula as as instituted in 2425 um you uh you get gatsby uh represented as as first a kind of uh you know arch reprobate and then as a martyr in his in his being killed uh and you get uh simultaneous with his with his kind of martyrdom and his the absolving that goes along with that is the reconstitution of the nuclear family of um of Tom daisy and Andy. daisy and yeah. tom exactly um so you have this kind of perfect moral uh resolution um in in gatsby's denouement and you know the 1949 version we were talking a little bit about this before the show um directed by elliot nugent starring alan ladd for i think it was for paramount uh, I I think it feels very similarly to how that 1926 version at least feels in retrospect in that uh, there are a lot of liberties taken with both the language and the story of Fitzgerald's original novel. And ultimately, uh, Alan Ladd is playing this kind of blue-eyed, angelic gangster of a figure who hmm. uh, is seeking redemption for his very kind of transparent sins committed in the the uh, Roaring Twenties when everyone who is succeeding, there's this great montage at the beginning of the movie where... Nick Carraway is narrating how everyone in the 20s basically got rich by doing something that they would feel terrible about in, 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 <laughs> in the late 20s or 1930s. And you see, you know, people dancing, drinking, uh, throwing money around. It's just a kind of time of hedonistic excess and, and sin. And at the end, we have, you know, this, you know, Alan Ladd is at uh, his, his mansion. He's standing up in the swimming pool. He's professing to Nick Carraway that he's going to, um, he's going to turn himself around. He's going to turn himself in for the murder of uh, Myrtle, Myrtle Wilson, and that he is going to prove to all of the future James Gatzes, the young boy he once was aspiring to be the success, that you don't have to do terrible things to succeed in this world. And then, of course, he's shot and killed. And he's, he's gone a bit too far in his sinning, but the audience and the reunited family yeah, can, can be redeemed. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's talk about the, uh, the 74 version, uh, which is the... Um, the first one after 49. So this is direct, also for Paramount, directed by Jack Clayton, starring Robert Redford as uh, Jay Gatsby, Mia Farrow, Sam Waterston. I was really uh, happy to see as Nick Harry. I didn't realize he was in this. And then Bruce Stern as Tom. Um, so 
I mean, just on the face of what, what did you think of this movie, just as a movie, almost even trying to separate it a bit from your understanding of The Great Gatsby, did you enjoy this movie uh, as just two and a half hours to uh, spend your time with a character and stories? You know, I, 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 I do like this movie, uh, maybe against popular opinion. Um, and I, I like it. I, th- I think it's, I think it's some things wrong uh, not just in terms of adaptation, but in, in as a movie, uh, well, maybe it's hard to, to distinguish those two things. I think the movie fails most when it takes, um, Nick Carraway's language and puts it in the mouths of, of speakers. So there'll be moments when, uh, when Mia Farrow and, um, and Robert Redford or Sam Watterson are, uh, are, speaking words that are very in, in a kind of high florid mode that that nick is really good at writing um and it, and it sounds stilted um but what i really love about the movie is just how on the one hand uh how kind of boring it is and on the other hand how sweaty it is you really get the sense that these are uh these are rich people with nothing to do and they have nothing to do on a long island summer except on those punctuating moments, go to Gatsby's parties. That I and when you say sweaty, you are literally describing beads of sweat. I mean, every character in this movie for the last for the past kind of two hours of it, or the latter two hours, they are sweating in between moderately and profusely. Oh yeah, and Sam Watterson looks looks like he's and, under duress. And Redford too. I mean, I've never seen that you know somewhat glamorous face just completely beaded by these little droplets of sweat. I'm I'm glad that you you found some uh, something to admire in the delivery of the lines um, in that the counterpoint between the having nothing to do and then the big celebrations of the parties, because I'm afraid I'm probably more with prevailing opinion on this one than not in that the, the deliberate awkwardness of the relationships in this movie, I think it, although it seems to be intentional and it works with the way that uh, the director has many of these shots are, uh, they're kind of long shots. People are at a distance. They're at far, uh, you know, they're far away from one another. There's a lot of physical distance separating people talking yeah. to one another. There's a lot of very audible space in between words delivered. Uh, and then there aren't a lot of cuts for most of the movie. And we just kind of look at these big palatial rooms and the white walls and the beige suits um, and people just kind of staring and speaking this uh, pretty mannered language, but mm-hmm. in a way that is unfortunately a, a little lifeless and i think that some of the characters do better than others i think uh um sam watterson's nick Carraway brings this kind of confused and easily frustrated but still yeah. kind of very much aspiring to do something great with his life attitude to it whereas robert redford's jay gatsby he's a little too much of a a blank slate and i'm interested in i mean is that blank do you see the blankness that Robert Redford gives in that movie as akin to the blankness that Fitzgerald writes of Gatsby in, in the book, or is there, that's a really is, good question. Is there something I, different there. Yeah. I hadn't, that, I mean, I think that's really astute of you to, to, to draw the connection. Uh, I guess I would maybe make a slight distinction between, um, Fitzgerald's under description of Gatsby, uh, and, um, and Redford's blankness, or what I, what I associate with uh, his blankness being a kind of embarrassment. Um, the under description, I think, allows for the romantic possibility of Gatsby to to take front and center in the novel. Um, in in Redford's case, I, and I think you see this uh, also in, in in Dern's case as well, is that they both seem uncomfortable. Uh, uh, when I when I read The Great Gatsby, I think about Tom Buchanan as this. Uh, gruff uh you know uh supercilious rich dude um but bruce dern really brings out the fact that he is on he's an uncomfortable person the only person that actually seems comfortable is mia farrow and her voice is made of money right Mm -hmm. it's a sound of money and so she's the only one that's she's the only one that's composed and cool she really looks like a, a doll, like a, a plaything in this. I mean, the amount of make- makeup and kind of rouge she's wearing, mm-hmm. the way that the camera captures her kind of looking up, awestruck, uh, whether at, at Gatsby or Buchanan or whoever is in the room at the time. I mean, she is, uh, Mia Farrow plays this woman as, um, she seems, you know, the, the, the Daisy in the book seems to have lost 
a lot of faith in herself and in the world around her to offer like a meaningful life and a life in which one can kind of dedicate oneself to others and, and uh, kind of be a productive member or, you know, kind of live a, a happy and fulfilling life. And I see a lot of that in the Carrie Mulligan performance and in, in the next great guest we were going to talking about mm-hmm. here with, I, I don't see any of that, that just beneath the surface kind of regret or shame or fear or, uh, you know, longing in, in the Mia Farrow performance. I see, uh, just again, it's uh, maybe, maybe it's again, not the same type of blankness as Robert Redford, but it's an, uh, kind of an inanimateness to her, her character that makes her seem like she really is someone being passed around between these male characters who are all in love with her, but maybe see in her, whatever it is that they, you know, feel best about themselves seeing, uh, I did like Bruce Stern, though, as Tom Buchanan. I thought his awkwardness and his kind of buffoonery gave an interesting yeah, he read. Seems, he to... seems sadly stupid. Yeah. And so when he's talking about how we have to beware the kind of colored races of the world overtaking the uh, the um, European civilization, it, it seems just as threatening as anyone else saying that. But there's also uh, something Trumpian. kind of sad and daft yeah. <laughs> about, about it, as opposed to the big kind of physical threat that sometimes Buchanan comes off as in... In the original Gatsby. Um, before we go to the 2013 version, I want to ask you what you thought about the the final, well, maybe the penultimate scene, the the murder of of Gatsby, because I thought that this was the kind of high point of the 74 version for me, where a movie that is two and a half hours long, some very distended kind of dialogue and a lot of silence and a lot of unbroken uh, shots, and then at the very end we have. This moment where it, it reminded me of the end of Bonnie and Clyde, where you have someone sneaking up uh, with a gun behind a character, and it's a very graphic depiction of the bullets kind of entering Robert Redford's body as he's lying in the pool, and we see him submerged underwater, we see four or five very quick cuts, and it seemed like a completely different movie, and it was a nice kind of cathartic moment for me, but it didn't seem like too little too late at the end of two and a half hours, but I was really... It, it seemed very of the 1970s, of the type of kind of gritty, realist cinema that maybe other, you know, people were, were making at that time. Did that scene stand out to you as well, or was that of a piece with what you'd seen in the rest? Uh, you know, I, I like your reading of it, um, especially situating it in the kind of new Hollywood of the late 60s, early 70s. Um, to, a, to a limit, though, and the limit is, in, is the uh, representation of, of George Wilson's suicide. Right, you don't get that. Right, that that seems to be a bridge too far for for Jack Clayton. Mm-hmm. That we we can't get. We can we can see Robert Redford torn up torn to bits by multiple gunshots, as opposed to in the 2013 version where there's one shot through his back and his heart bleeds, and then he dies in a, in a hyper symbolic moment. Right, right. Uh, and, this is no martyrdom at the end of the 74 version. Right, this is a brutal kind of murder of a guy. Right, there's yeah. nothing reverential about the depiction of this. Uh, the death of this character here no it's just he's just he's on he's he's unlucky in that <laughs> he's, one yeah he, he thinks he's on the wrong side and for such a sentimental movie i that kind of tension between the sentimentality and the kind of the the realism maybe that awkwardness also plays into the kind of realist uh kind of non-fantastic representation of this otherwise pretty like kinetic and fantastic story that mm-hmm. is i don't know surprisingly bold maybe i'm coming around a bit more to <laughs> to it as we talk about it yeah well it I'm not going to say that this is a great movie. Yeah. Uh, what I will say is that there are, there are things to like about it and um, there are things to appreciate about its adaptation. Um, for instance, I really do like the fact that um, that there is the kind of revelation of uh, Gatsby's past at the end. Um, we get the sense that Gatsby was not, you know, the platonic self-conception of himself, uh, but was created by others like when his when his father shows up henry gatch shows up at the door and he's eating that cheese sandwich and it's kind of falling apart in his hands it, it's kind of an extraordinary moment uh and, and you really see the the origins of jimmy gatz and what what gave rise to jay gatsby and so i like that a lot wonderful use of a close-up in that scene too right totally. whereas before we had seen the close-up of robert redford's face as he says you know of course you can repeat the past or these iconic lines from gatsby where the, the romanticism of the character is just emerging full force from these close-ups. Here we have a close-up on a character who can barely hold a cheese sandwich in his hands, right? right? And he's maybe toothless, or he, he's really kind of falling apart, and you're right, this is the origin of... Uh, and whom Baz Luhrmann yes. totally cuts out of the 2013. Totally cuts out. Um, let's let's go to uh, the Baz Luhrmann, and unfortunately we only have a couple minutes, but I really want to um, talk about this one, because I, I saw this when this came out in 2013, yeah. and 
I was no fan of Baz Luhrmann before then, mm-hmm. and I was not much of a fan afterwards. I, I appreciated <laughs> the kind of excess and the way that it jived with my my memory of um, The Great Gatsby, but I thought, you know, this is this is too much of the kind of music video style of filmmaking that I uh, tend to react negatively to that this guy does, um, whether it be Moulin Rouge or the um, Romeo and Juliet from the mid-90s. Yeah. Uh, and then watching this after reading The Great Gatsby... I was kind of floored. I thought this was an amazing movie. I thought it was such a wonderful adaptation and such an entertaining and, and powerful movie in itself, both in terms of the way that it uses the cinematic language to bring to life uh, this story, um, but also I thought it captures so well the essence of the um, the uh, the star of Gatsby in Leonardo DiCaprio's performance, the uh, the unreliable narrator of Nick Carraway, that fraught uh, kind of internal conflict of Daisy, and then the what really blew me was the performance of uh, Joel Edgerton as Tom yeah. Buchanan as this guy who just He's a whirlwind who just you know destroys everything in his path. Um, he is a physical presence uh, in in this movie and in the story. So now that I've laid my cards kind of on the table no, for this movie, what what did you what did you think of? Well, just on the subject of Edgerton, um, you know, there's the the description of Gats of uh, in Gatsby early on of Tom uh, when he gets out uh, gets off of his uh, horse uh, off of his polo pony. And under his thin riding jacket, you can see the wad of muscle um, moving in, on his back. And that's, you know, I think that Edgerton captured that. There's a, there's the, the, the physical brute force. And, uh, you know, Daisy calls him hulking. Um, and that's exactly right. You really get the sense of, of what you call, I think aptly call a, a physical whirlwind. Uh, so I think, I think the casting was, was, was quite good yeah. uh, in, in that regard. And, and you know, the first the first couple of times I, I saw I watched this movie, I didn't like uh, Carrie Mulligan as Daisy. Uh, maybe because I had the idea of, of Mia Farrow in my mind and as as this kind of cipher in a way. But Carrie Mulligan seems to own the role in a way that that Mia Farrow didn't. And this is a character who can very easily be trampled upon by the kind of marauding male characters in the story, and she doesn't in the book. From you know my reading of Daisy is that she really is just as much you know one of the uh, characters that the audience can really identify with and understand and sympathize with as anyone else, maybe even more so than anyone else because of how much she suffers. And I feel like that complexity really comes through in in Daisy's performance. Um, and I I really. I mean, this movie is a very gaudy movie. It's a very bright and kind of fluorescent movie. And talk about where we don't see the vast you know, meretricious beauty is, oh, is, is what uh, is, is what Fitz, uh, Fitzgerald writes in, in Gatsby, and you really get that sense. And and then from the you know running over of Myrtle Wilson and the way that she floats in slow motion in front of the eyes of Elkerberg to totally. the the death of uh, Gatsby at the end. I mean, this is a movie that is not uh, in any way subtle. But I think that it it captures something about the not just the excess that that Fitzgerald is describing, but what is the kind of motivation for that excess? I mean, that desperation to succeed at all costs, and the way that you kind of destroy everything around you, whether it be the the, I mean, even just the the flowers that that um, Gatsby brings to to nick's cottage for his reunion with daisy I mean, on the one hand it's beautiful and it's overdone but it also just completely destroys the room it, it makes it suffocating right um i was i don't know i was really impressed by this and and in a way that i didn't think i would ever say about a baz Luhrmann movie. <laughs> well there you go you 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 succumb to, his, to, <laughs> to, 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 to the to the brute whirlwind force of uh Luhrmann's production design we have I know I spent a lot of time chattering about that movie right there. So if I want to give you a second, any other things you want to say about these two movie adaptations? Because I have one more question for you about generally what, what you think kind of makes for a good adaptation. Like what, what should be the goal of a filmmaker when they're approaching, you know, a work of literature like The Great Gatsby? Um, but maybe let that question simmer for a second. Anything else you want to say about these two movies, whether you were surprised, delighted, disappointed? You know, I think I'll I'll let our conversation stand. I think that we, you know, it, within the, our limited time frame, did a pretty good job. Cool. Well, then, what about this question of the kind of ideal adaptation for you? Not necessarily what makes for like the best movie, but what should people, either filmmakers or even audiences, be thinking about when they're looking at this is a work of literature that's been adapted to the screen? Um, why is this like a worthwhile thing to do? Why is it a worthwhile thing to do? Well. I think it's worthwhile because good stories are good stories. And, 
if you're going to have a good story in one form, uh, give it a shot in another just to expose more people to it. And that's, that's maybe a, s- a simple answer, but if it, if it works, it works. And that's, and that's kind of what I would say in a, in a maybe more uh, intellectual mode, which would be to, to say, don't worry about fidelity, worry about making a good movie. <laughs> right. Um, if, if you, if you, to put it another way, an adaptation is always going to be an interpretation. Like any act of reading is going to be an, uh, an act of interpretation. So don't worry about being perfectly to the letter in, in the way that uh, the 74 Gatsby does when they take Nick Carraway's lines and put them in Mia Farrow's mouth. Maybe that maybe that's where the, the movie falls down on being overly, uh, with over-fidelity. Uh, so I would, I would say that for me, adaptations that, you know, own own themselves as movies as as separate objects those are the most successful in my mind and i think that's where actually you end the kind of first this chapter about fitzgerald that you wrote in your dissertation ends with that idea of it's not necessarily the parameters the kind of institutional parameters of um you know what makes for a a good movie or a good adaptation but rather the quality of the players involved the strength of the players not the rules of the game yes that's exactly it um Thank you so much for coming on, Jordan. I really like yeah, talking this with is you. Great. Um, is there any, you know, I usually ask people who come through if there's anywhere that if audiences want to learn more about either what you do or what you write <laughs> or what you study. And is there um, anywhere that you want to direct people on the internet? Or shall we just say look out for a literary? I would just say shoot me an email if you're interested. Um, I can be reached at jordan.brower at yale.edu. Great. All right, Jordan. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. All right, uh, you've been listening to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven, and we will be back next week with another episode.